Well, we serve a God who is marvelous. And those people that heard Jesus read from the Scripture for maybe the first time there in Galilee as, as part of His ministry, they marveled at what they heard that day. What an amazing opportunity that we have to know Him, to walk with Him, to be His followers, and to follow this marvelous God. He's not just a marvelous God who created the heavens and the earth. He's not just a marvelous God who sent ten plagues, which we're going to see in Exodus today, but He's a marvelous God who came down and He lived among us. I think the kids have something going on in the back today, and so I want to uh, invite the kids to go back with Miss Cindy. Uh, two um, items of uh, business, I guess, really quickly. Uh, number one, as uh, you guys are going through the story, I know a lot of you are reading the story with us. Uh, you're reading the Scripture. And uh, we have two tracks that we're on. Uh, one track is going to be have a really easy week. Okay, if you're, if you're on the uh, abbreviated version and you're reading through the highlights of the story, uh, we're going, going to be going through the book of, of um, uh, the latter part of Exodus this, this month, or this week. Excuse me, I'm getting my words mixed up. And so uh, you're going to have just one or two chapters a week. Uh, for those of you that are reading the whole Bible in seven months, okay, this is going to be the challenge week, all right? And I want to encourage you to keep on pressing on and stick with it. You're going to have Leviticus and, and a few chapters of Numbers this week. And so you have a lot of those laws that you're going to be reading. You read through the entire, chapter, the entire book of Exodus this last week. And so I want to encourage you to keep on going. You're going to get some of those passages that, remember, these were the, this was the first time that the Israelites heard these things when they were out in the wilderness. And God gave them these laws so that they would know how to follow Him and how to worship Him. And, and it was very important that they had that structure for how they were going to be doing their sacrifices and how the priest was going to do what he was going to do. And so as you read through that, I want, you to, to, I want to encourage you, keep on going with it. Don't give up. Some of those chapters can be a little repetitive and difficult and a little bit far removed from our context where, you know, your pastor doesn't get up here in weird robes and, and stones on his, you know, I don't wear a turban uh, when, I, when I come to preach. Aren't you glad? We don't have sacrifices that we offer every service. Uh, but it was very important to the worship of Israel. So keep on going. I'm really encouraged by those of you that are reading God's Word, whether you're reading the abbreviated version or you're doing uh, the whole Bible in seven months. Uh, second thing I want to mention before we open in prayer, uh, I always like to introduce uh, when we have special visitors. And this morning, for the first time here, we have Max and Abby Steffens with us. Uh, congratulations to the two of them. For those of you that don't know, uh, their wedding was a week ago yesterday, and so congratulations. We're excited to uh, celebrate with you, and glad to have you here this morning. Welcome, Mrs. Steffens. If you would join me in prayer, let's go to the God of his word, this word. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you that you've given to us your word written on the pages of, of Scripture. Words to live by. Words that teach us to know you. Words that teach us about ourself and our desperate need for a Savior. Words that teach us about your story. The story that you've been unfolding through the ages. And the story that we are part of. Father, it's my prayer that as we continue on through this story, as Scripture reveals it, I pray that you'd help us to understand our place in that. I pray that you'd help us to understand our need for you not only in coming to you, to you for forgiveness for the first time, but our need for you to walk in it daily. Help us to grow. Help us to know you. And might you be glorified as we turn to your word and learn about you and your plan now. Amen. 
There's a story told by Max Lucado, a great storyteller, and uh, he tells the parable about Hank and the mop bucket. The hallway was silent except for the wheels of the mop bucket and the shuffle of the old man's feet. Both sounded tired. Both knew these floors. How many nights had Hank cleaned them? Always careful to get in the corners, always careful to set up his yellow caution sign warning of wet floors, always chuckling as he does. Be careful, everyone. He laughs to himself, knowing no one is near. Not at 3 a.m. Hank's health isn't what it used to be. Gout keeps him awake. Arthritis makes him limp. His glasses are so thick that his eyeballs look twice their size. Shoulders stoop. But he does his work. Slopping soapy water on linoleum. Scrubbing the heel marks left by the well-heeled lawyers. He'll be finished an hour before quitting time because he always finishes early. He has for 20 years. When he's finished, he'll put away his bucket and he'll take a seat outside the office of the senior partner and he'll wait. Hank never leaves early. He could, no one would know, but he doesn't because he broke the rules once, never again. Sometimes, if the door's open, he'll enter the office. Not for long, just to look. The suite is larger than his own apartment. He'll run his finger over the desk. He'll stroke the soft leather couch. He'll stand at the window and watch the gray sky turn gold. And he'll remember. He once had an office like that. Back when Hank was Henry. Back when the custodian was an executive. Long ago. Before the night shift. Before the mop bucket. Before the maintenance uniform. Before the scandal. Hank doesn't think about it much now. There's no reason to. But he got in trouble. Got fired. And he got out. That's it. Not many people know about it probably better that way. No need to tell them. It's his secret. You see, Hank made a mistake he could never forget. A grave mistake. Hank killed someone. He came upon a brute beating up an innocent man, and Hank lost control. He killed the mugger, and then when word got out, Hank got out. Hank would rather hide than go to jail, and so he ran. The executive became a fugitive. Hank was a man who'd settled for the mediocre, trained in the finest institutions of the world, yet working the night shift in a minimum wage job so that he wouldn't be seen in the day. But all this changed when he heard the voice from the mop bucket. Did I mention this is a true story? At first, he thought the voice was a joke. Some of the fellows on the third floor playing these kinds of tricks that they do. Henry! Henry, the voice said. Hank turned. No one had called him Henry anymore. Henry! He turned toward the pail, and it was glowing. It was bright red. Hot red. He could feel the heat ten feet away, and so he stepped closer, and he looked in, and the water wasn't boiling. This is strange, Hank mumbled to himself as he took another step to get a closer look. But the voice stopped him and said, Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. Where you're standing is holy ground. And suddenly, Hank knew who was speaking. God? Now, you think I'm making this up, don't you? 
Sounds crazy. Almost irreverent. God speaking from a mop, hot mop bucket to a janitor named Hank. But it would be more believable if I said that the true story was God speaking from a burning bush to a poor shepherd named Moses. A man who was trained in the finest institutions of Egypt, who murdered a man and ran away, lived the life of a poor shepherd until God interrupted his life and spoke to him from a bush. Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. You see, just because we're familiar with the story, the true story, the real version, doesn't make it any less spectacular than it was the first day that it happened to that 80-year-old shepherd. Probably a little bit more healthier than Hank was. You see, by now we're starting to grow accustomed to spectacular stories, aren't we? We've gone through the entire book of Genesis over this last few weeks, and, and we've seen some spectacular stories about uh, an aged man and his wife having a child, about God creating the heavens and the earth, about Adam and Eve falling in the garden, Jacob and Isaac and Joseph sold into slavery, and the forgiveness that he offered to his, his, his brothers. But perhaps the most spectacular of all of the stories is the spectacular nature of God's story and the truth that He is in relentless pursuit of relationship with us. Isn't that spectacular? That God wants to know you and He wants you to know Him and He's invited you into a personal relationship to walk with Him, to know Him, to, to read His Word, to know this story and to live by it. That he calls us his friends. It's spectacular that he's adopted us into his family if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It's jaw-dropping. The God who created it all has invited you to walk with him. The creator of the universe wants a relationship with mankind. But we rejected the story. Like Adam and Eve, every single one of us, we choose everything else except for this loving Creator who wants to know us. But amazingly, spectacularly, He steps in, doesn't He? We, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that as soon as Adam and Eve fell, what did God do? He reached out. He offered, what was that? offered a promise. He promised that someday that there was going to be a deliverer. That God was accomplishing reconciliation between Himself and the human race that had rejected Him, but God would provide a deliverer. And so right after Adam and Eve rebelled against Him, He made this promise of one who would come that would bring victory and crush the head of the serpent. Eventually, He chooses Abraham, and, and that promise of that deliverer would come from His family. That promise was passed down to his son and his grandson and, and their 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel. And when we left off last week, we saw that the Israelites had made their way down to Egypt during a time of famine. And, and it was there that God protected the people of Israel, this people of promise. And so this promise that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has continued on to this people, and God is protecting that. He's protecting the people of the promise, and He's protecting this promise of the Deliverer that would come. 
And so there in Egypt, God provided for them. He protected them as a chosen nation. And there in Egypt, they dwelt for about 400 years. Now quickly, after we've done all that quick review, let's walk through the story so far. I've been teaching you a few key words, and these are just handled. This isn't something magic, and this isn't something that, that uh, you know, there's, an, there's not an appendix that Moses gave us or, or Paul gave us that has these key words. But this is to help you kind of build some structure. And so if you would help me walk through the story so far, let's go through those key words that are helping us to learn the story. And so say it with me, first of all. Okay, so we have creation, fall, flood. Okay, every, okay well, let's start over. I heard like three people. Everybody with me, all right? Creation, fall, flood. Babel, patriarchs, there's the big one, patriarchs, Egypt, and that brings us to the book of Exodus where we meet Moses. And again, I don't expect you to memorize the dates. I'm not going to quiz you over the dates, but for those of you that are here that like timelines, uh, your next date is 1446 B.C. This is the date for their exit from Egypt. That's what Exodus means. It means exit. About 720 years after the birth of Abraham in the city of Ur, back in Mesopotamia, if you remember the Tigris and Euphrates rivers from your high school geography and and history class, uh, Abraham was born in Ur, and and God delivers the Israelites out of slavery about 720 years later. It's the event that we call the Exodus. All right, so it's your turn. Let's do this from memory this time. I'll give you the slides, all right? So the first four are creation... Patriarchs, Egypt. Good, very good. All right, keep working on those. Today, we are going to cover 80 years of history from Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 12, where we find on the lower story this epic of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. God is accomplishing this great plan that sometimes it's hard to see from a human perspective. But from the human perspective, we see that God is delivering His people from Egypt. If you turn to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, uh, we studied Exodus back t- together back in 2020, and so it took us about nine weeks to get through these 12 chapters. But today we're just going to review these and, and look at in three parts. Quickly, we'll look at God's unexpected deliverer that you've read about in Exodus chapters 1 through 5. We're going to briefly review God's unexpected war with the gods of Egypt in chapters 6 through 10, and then we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at God's unexpected sacrifice in chapters 11 and 12. See, Exodus is the amazing history of the mighty hand of God and how he delivered his people from slavery. Chapter 1 serves as an introduction to that story, but but I want you to understand, it's important to understand, that this introduction is, is vital for, for more than just providing the setting of a book. The first chapter of Exodus shows us that, that this is actually a continuation of the story. A continuation of the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and his brothers. And it's a story, an introduction to God's plan to bless the nations through this one family. And, and, and what's happened is over this 400 years, these people that started with about 70 individuals has now grown into hundreds of thousands, and they're in Egypt, and, and, and things don't look so good. The promise is being threatened. The people are being threatened. Not only is there a threat that they might incorporate themselves into a foreign nation that worships foreign gods, but there's this threat that um, their family's gotten too big. They've become a great nation, and the Egyptians and Pharaoh were fearful of that. And so 
This Pharaoh had forgotten Joseph and all that Joseph had done for Egypt 400 years earlier. But this God proves faithful in carrying out His promises, even in the midst of a nationwide program in which Pharaoh tries to snuff out the people. Exodus begins with a dilemma. The Egyptians have grown afraid of the number of the Israelites, and so Pharaoh makes an attempt to control the population by forcing the Israelites to throw their infant sons into the Nile River. It's out of this attempted genocide, however, that God's deliverer is born. We know the story, you read the story, perhaps you read it this last week, some of you maybe for the first time, of Moses' parents and how they preserved their son's life because they were people of faith. They believed God. They refused to obey the king's evil command. And in a great twist of God's design, their son is actually adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. They hit him in the bulrushes, and, and, and the Pharaoh's daughter comes down, and while she's at the river, she hears the cry. She sees something. Whatever it was that drew her eye, and she pulls out this basket, and, and Moses' older sister is there trying to guard, watch over him, and, and amazingly, she goes and says, hey, I, I've got an idea. I know somebody that can, can nurse the child. And so Pharaoh's daughter adopts this boy, but who does she choose to take care of the baby? Moses' own mother. And, and so Moses grows up probably those early years learning from his parents. And then he grows up in the palace where he's educated. And by the time he's 40 years old, it would appear that he is the perfect person to deliver the Israelites out of slavery. And it would appear that Moses probably knew that. He knew of his heritage and he knew that he was, he was the ideal person to lead them into a great revolution. He was smart. Uh, when Stephen preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 7, uh, the phrase that he uses, it, it, it indicates that Moses was, was probably very smart. Not just educated, but brilliant. He was also a man of faith, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. And he was in the perfect position to lead a revolution. And so in chapter 2, we're told that he went out to see his people. He was probably curious. He wanted to know how they were doing. Maybe he was going out to kind of show himself off a little bit. Hey, I'm the guy. Remember, I, I was born among you, but I've been trained. I've been, I'm ready for this. He goes out to see his people, but can you imagine how Moses felt when he went out and he saw what he saw? He saw their burdens. He saw an Egyptian hitting a Hebrew slave. The word that's used for hitting indicates that this wasn't just a slap. It wasn't just an event, but it was a series of blows that kept coming one after another. And Moses saw this, but in chapter 2, verse 12, it goes on to tell us what else he looked for and what he did so that no one else would see what he did. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, He looked this way and that. Seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 and explains what happened in Moses' mind. Verse 25, it says, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by His hand. But they did not understand. You see, Moses got the faith part right. And Moses could see that God had raised him up for a unique purpose He was saved out of the Nile, preserved by God to obviously be the deliverer of the Hebrew slaves. But Moses chose the time 
And Moses chose to initiate that deliverance according to his plan. You ever done that? You ever think you have everything under control? Ever think God's just been waiting for you? And so you do things in your time, in your plan. Maybe you didn't think God was waiting for you, but you went forward with what your plan said rather than wait for His. Several years ago, a pastor that I worked with told me something that I'll never forget. It sticks with me whenever I experience conflict within the church. Because we're all people, right? We love Jesus, and we all get along always. We never have any problems among us, right? Is that how it works? No, we're sinners. We, we, we still have problems with sin. We still make mistakes. Pride still comes into things. All of us, myself included, we do some things sometimes that are pretty dumb. We're sheep. But um, every t- anytime I, I encounter conflict within the church, I remember him telling me, he said, Jeff, you just remember that you can be absolutely right about something but still have the wrong spirit you see you and i may get our theology right we may we may have some of our politics all straight and proper you may you may have a lot of things all figured out and in place there may be things in this life that you and i are going to get absolutely right but if we say and do the right things and yet not, we don't live, out, live that out in the right spirit, our failure remains great. Moses got a lot of things right. But he didn't live it out in the right spirit. Seeking God's plan rather than his. And his failure was great. He went out the next day just like he did the first What would he see on day two? When he went out the next day, we're told in verse 13, behold, that that same word for look, see. Two Hebrews were struggling together. Again, same word is used for the Egyptians and, and for Moses when they struck someone. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. Moses was the right deliverer who started the exodus, but on his own terms. He did it in the wrong way. You see, he saw himself as the deliverer. He saw himself as the one that God had placed him there and prepared him there, and he saw the burdens of his people. But instead of being welcomed as their Savior, Moses becomes known for his failure. When he came back 40 years later, there were probably some still around that remembered what he had done. Have you ever done all the right things and walked by faith and thought to yourself, I'm I'm going to make such an amazing difference? I'm going to make an amazing difference in the lives of these people. Well, Moses went along those lines and his plan backfired. In verse 15, it tells us when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Sounds like a good place to be when you're all tired out.
Over the next few chapters, we discover that he spent 40 more years in the land of Midian. The first 40 years, he grew up in Egypt. The next 40 years, he was trained in the desert, shepherding sheep. He married the daughter of a Midianite priest, had two sons. It appeared that he would spend the remainder of his days doing just that. However, our God does spectacular things, doesn't he? He steps into our lives. You may not lead the exodus out of Egypt, but he stepped into your life if you've chosen to follow him. If you've repented of your sin and, and you believed in his son, Jesus Christ, then God has already done an amazing, spectacular thing in you. He chooses people that might, you might not expect. He accomplishes marvelous things in a timing that might surprise you. And over the next few chapters, we discover God calling Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. But this time it would be in God's timing and it would be according to God's way. As we discovered a couple of years ago when we went through these passages, we saw, that, we saw that Moses makes a lot of excuses, doesn't he? I think we took three sermons to get through all those ex excuses and all the failures and all the, the things that God was teaching Moses to prepare him for, for the next task. But when all the dust settled, the most important thing that he discovered, as stated in chapter 3, verse 12, was that God was with him. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? You try to do things, go do God's plan, think what you think God would have you do, but you do it without him. It doesn't usually turn out very well. But this time God was with him, and once again, the God of the universe shows his desire to enter into relationship with his people. As we turn to chapter 6 through 10, we see also God's unexpected war with the God of e gods of Egypt. You see, when Moses went to Pharaoh, he declared that Yahweh, the word that's translated Lord with all capital letters in your Bible, that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, had commanded, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And if you remember, one of the first questions that Pharaoh asks Moses when, when this command is given to him was what? Anybody remember what it was? I think I heard it. Uh, who sent him? But closely associated with that question. Who's Yahweh? Who's the Lord that I should obey Him? Who is this God that you're talking about? Who is Yahweh that I should obey His voice? And what unfolds next in these next few chapters is God's systematic program that's designed to answer that question. Not only for Pharaoh, not only for the Egyptians, but also for all of the Israelites. Who is Yahweh that we should obey Him? And God says, let me show you. And so Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, shows His power to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites, and He uses ten plagues. Understand that the plagues of Egypt, I, I want you to understand, they are not just a series of bad things that God hurled at people for the sake of inflicting wrath and judgment. It was judgment. But it was more than that. You see, there was a purpose to these judgments which He brought on this ancient kingdom and there was a message that He was declaring to everyone that was present in that day. And it was a message that all the nations around them also heard loud and clear. The God of Israel is greater than all the other gods. To Pharaoh, God was declaring, there is no one like the Lord. And He's worthy of our worship. To the Egyptians, God was declaring, there is no one like the Lord. And He's worthy 
of worship. And to the Israelites who had for over 400 years become quite accustomed to the gods of Egypt and the the goat demons and all the other things that were worshipped in Egypt and all the other practices and customs that they'd kind of gotten used to. God was declaring, there is no one like the Lord. And He's worthy of our worship. And He wants you hearing this text of this true story to know that there is no one like the Lord. And He's worthy of your worship. The Lord wants you to understand that there's no one like Him. There's no man, there's no God, there's no politician, no country, no object of safety and security that you can find in this life. Nothing that can compare to Him. In Exodus, he shows this through a series of ten plagues. And watch how he shows this through the, we're just going to look at the first plague, and then we'll jump to the tenth. The first one was a plague of frogs. We're told at the beginning of chapter 8, then, I'm just going to, when you see the capital letters, Lord, I'm going to read Yahweh, because that's what's intended to be read there. Chapter, what did I say? Yeah, chapter 8, verse 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. And I just misspoke a second ago. This is the second plague. The plague of blood was the first. A couple of you are smiling because you got that already. You see, the Egyptian word for frog, it's kind of a fun word. Kirk. Kirk. Sounds like a frog, doesn't it? Kerr. Egyptians loved frogs. You see, do you guys love frogs? Do you like hearing them at night down by the pond? Not in the house, but down by the pond. We had this really bright green frog that was on our screen the other day. Angie got some great pictures of it. It was beautiful. But for Egyptians, the sound of frogs in the pools of water, it meant that the gods had blessed the land with the flooding of the Nile. It meant that it was a good year. If they heard the frogs, it meant that the waters were, were watering the, the wheat and the crops. Kerr. In Egypt, the sound of frogs is beautiful. In Hecate, the frog goddess was the goddess of fertility and childbirth. You see, she brought life with spring. But now Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, says... I will plague Egypt with Kerr. And so God caused the Nile River, we're told, to swarm with frogs. And they came up out of the water. They infested the land. Uh, Friday, was. where's David at? All right, David here. Can you bail on us? Okay, no ice cream for him. I, I'm, the rule in our house is if I mention their name without asking them, right, they get ice cream. But yeah, he's probably in the back taking care of something. My, my kids get it so bad. I mean, just for asking him, he doesn't even know it. Now I've lost my place. Uh, David uh, called the other day. He says, we had a visitor today. He says, I don't know how, but a squirrel got into the house. He started hearing this noise, and, and here's a squirrel jumping and bam, into the window. Bam, trying to get out. And then the dog heard it. And then you can imagine all chaos broke loose. I mean, dog barking, squirrel running all over the place. David's trying to catch it. Finally, he gets the squirrel out of the house. 
Well, now the dog gets ice cream. No, that is not good. Well, you can imagine how crazy it was. Imagine having your entire house swarmed with small creatures. Not squirrels, but cur. They're in your kitchenware. They're in your oven. You climb into bed at night and you're greeted by your prince who comes to give you a kiss goodnight. And here's where it gets really bad. Every single one of those frogs is the embodiment of Hecate, one of your gods. And you can't do a thing about it. No rat poison, no brooms, no squishing them. You can't hurt them. They're sacred. What a dilemma, right? Well, through these ten plagues, God goes to war with the gods of Egypt. And I want to just summarize what's going on in those three chapters. Each plague is not only a judgment against Pharaoh's hardness of heart, but each plague is also a display that God's power, of God's power and that there is no God like Yahweh. He's worthy of our worship. By the end of these plagues, the Egyptians are no longer trying to keep the Israelites out of Egypt, but they're saying, please, get out of here, leave, go, take our gold, take our stuff, just leave. And so God not only accomplishes this in the heart of the Egyptians, but he shows Israel that he is a God who is able to deliver. And systematically, God judged every single one of the gods of Egypt. Each plague was an attack on one of the gods. Whether it was the Nile River itself, the frogs, in some way, each plague was an attack on their own gods. But even more than this, he shows Israel that he is a God, and it says this over and over and over again, I am with you. I'm with you. He's a God who desires to be in relationship with his people. And we can know that too. He's a God who is with you, and he's a God who is unlike any of the other gods. He's worthy of your worship. But notice in chapters 11 through 12, Something that God accomplishes that's different than the first nine plagues. After Moses' last meeting with Pharaoh, he tells them, if you don't let my people go, God is going to come and he's going to kill all the firstborn. From the firstborn in Pharaoh's house to the firstborn of all the slaves. Firstborn of all the cattle. But God hits pause. He hits the pause button for a few moments in our story. And he's going to explain some new things. And we find in chapter 12, there's this description of, of new festivals, new calendars, new God institutes a whole bunch of new things. The plagues pause for a moment and God institutes um, a new calendar, but also he teaches them some things particularly about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was their first Passover. They never heard of Passover before. All the Jews around the world today, they still celebrate Passover. But this was the first. This is something unlike they'd ever heard of before. And before the last plague takes place, Yahweh calls for action from the Hebrews. You see, before he says, here it comes, he comes to the people, not just Moses talking to Pharaoh, not just Pharaoh hardening his heart, but God comes to the people, Israel. And he demands a response. He requires them to put some skin in the game before this is all over. 
And what he requires, it doesn't make sense other than he said to do it. And over the past year, over the past months, his track record has been pretty phenomenal, hasn't it? They watched all these other plagues and they went, wow, there is no other God like our God. But also what he requires them to do is going to mark them. You see, they're going to paint blood on their homes. That would make your house stand out, wouldn't it? You think if somebody, the police officers came down the road and they were looking for you, they'd be able to find your house pretty easily? You see, they're going to paint blood on their homes, and if Moses is wrong, and if God does not deliver on His promise during this last plague, then Pharaoh is going to have a very easy way of identifying every single individual who played their part in this, in this program. And so before the plague of the firstborn begins, God says to the Hebrew people, okay, you choose. Do you believe? Do you believe me? I've given you ample evidence that I am not only your God, but that I am greater than all the gods of Egypt. I say that I will do something, and I deliver on my promises. But do you believe? And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, let's just look at a sample of his instructions. We're going to jump from verse to verse. Starting in verse 3, he says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. Jumping down to verse 5, he says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so he gives a few specifics. Um, but the lambs will be selected on day 10. It's to be one of the best lambs. Okay, so you don't go among the lambs and go, oh yeah, that one has a broken lamb, let's use that one. Uh, that, remember the blind one? Yep, let's get rid of that. This is a good opportunity. No, God says, uh-uh, none of that. I want the best. And then they're to pick it from the best, and they're to guard it for four days. And then on the 14th, every family was to participate in, and, and kill their lambs bef- between sunset and dark. And, and now this is where it gets personal. Mary had a little lamb, and it's been brought home. And the children have been playing with it. Maybe they named it, right? Hopefully not. It's been around for four days. And then that innocent lamb is slaughtered. Verse 26, Moses is going to call it the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. And I want you to get the picture of what this is accomplishing. We'll talk talk about this a little bit more here in a few minutes, but Something innocent died in place of those who would have died during the 10th plague. I I don't want you to miss this. The 10th plague was the plague of the firstborn. The firstborn from every house in the land of Egypt died that night. Except for the families that applied the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. And this is a picture that is going to be played out through the rest of the, enti- the entire Old Testament. And we're going to come back to it in the New Testament. 
This idea of the Passover lamb and and the sacrifice and a substitute. These are are concepts that are going to permeate all of Scripture, all of the story. And this is a picture that's going to be played out throughout the entire Bible, but mankind has rejected God's story. And, and, and mankind has made our, we've made ourselves enemies of God. But rather than shed the blood of every human being like we deserved, God instead established a program which He says, I'm going to make a substitute. Rather than your life, I'm going to take the life of something else. Blood is required. An innocent animal would die instead of the guilty sinner, and just like at the first Passover, the innocent lamb's blood was shed instead of the firstborn of each home. In verse 7, the instructions get a little peculiar. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So what are the doorposts? Stand in the middle of your doorway, right? And put your hands out. Those are the doorposts. What's the lintel? Is that a word you use oftentimes? Yeah, put your look up. You know, there's the lintel. And so they're to paint blood on, on the doorposts and the lintel. So all, basically all around the, the door. Over the next several verses, he continues to give particular instructions for how they were to eat the meal and how the, this new holiday would be celebrated. But because the angel of death passed over the houses that had been marked, the day was called Passover. And Jews around the world still celebrate the holiday today during the first month of the year. And here's how he summarized all this, starting in verse 27. He says, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so. As Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They chose. They said, we're in. We believe this God. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. After this, Pharaoh and and the Egyptians drove Israel out of the land, and thus God brought a, a great deliverance. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, it tells us in verse 40. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept uh, kept to, to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. And verse 50 concludes, all the people of Israel did just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. You see, God was, Moses was an unexpected deliverer. God raised him up and everyone, when everyone least expected it. The, Egyptian, the, excuse me, the Exodus was an unexpected war with the gods of Egypt. In those ten plagues, the Lord demonstrated that He is a God unlike any other God. And one of the most spectacular things about this God is that He seeks friendship. He seeks relationship with His people, with those who would believe Him. We call that faith. And God demonstrates grace. He pours out something we don't deserve, something good, and He gives it to us. 
even though we've declared ourselves to be enemies of God. That grace is received through faith, through believing, just like the Israelites did. They believed God. He said, we're in. In order to establish reconciliation between himself and his enemies, us, he taught us the necessity of sacrifice. The penalty for our sin is death. But at Passover and throughout Israel's history, they made sacrifices which they served as temporary substitutes until God would bring about the perfect sacrifice. The perfect substitute. Do you see where all this is pointing? God's preparing all this 1,400 years before the Deliverer comes. And so he established that blood was required as payment for our sin, but the blood of goats and bulls and lambs, it could never completely remove the stain of our sin, could it? It just kind of covered things up until the perfect sacrifice would come. Listen to what is written in the New Testament. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Do you get that? What's it call him? Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the innocent one that never committed sin, but He was sacrificed on your behalf, on my behalf. Exodus tells us how God delivered Israel from slavery, but within the lower story of Exodus, God is up here in the upper story, and He's giving us a glimpse in this and showing us a little bit of an idea of what He's doing and what He's planning on that upper story and where He's taking us. The Lamb was the sacrifice of the Lord's Supper. But don't miss out on the remarkable reality that the Lord, we're told, took on human flesh and He became one of us. Jesus became a man. And He became the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. He died for us. His blood was spilled out. He was the substitute for us so that just as God passed over the houses of the Hebrews, in the same way, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, I'm in. I believe Him. I have a sin problem and something has to be done about it. And I am heading to a lost eternity. God's wrath is pointed towards me. And I can't do anything about it. Nothing. I can't be good enough. Coming to church, praying, all this stuff that we do, none of that can accomplish your salvation. But God says, I have a plan. He became a man. He died in our place. And He became our substitute. So that just like God passed over the houses of the Hebrews in the same way, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, just like their faith was in this God who would pass over them, then they put that blood, they applied it to their doorposts. If you have applied Jesus' blood to your life, He passes over you. God called for specific action on part of the Israelites, but I don't want you to miss how our story is the same as their story. Because God is accomplishing the same purpose in His story. God calls for action from you, just like He did from the Hebrews. He requires 
you to put some skin in the game before this is all over. Before your life ends, before He returns and reveals Himself in His glory, before He comes back in judgment, God says to you, okay, you choose. Do you believe? I've given you ample evidence that I'm not only your God, but that I am greater than all the other gods. I say that I will do something and I deliver on my promises. But do you believe? Believe on the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. As we close today, I know I'm running a little bit over, but as we close today, I'd, I'd like to ask you to respond by writing down one name. You can write it on your notes. I, I, I wrote mine last night in my Bible. Just put it on the back leaf of my Bible here. I, I wrote it in there because it's permanent. I want you to write down one name. The name of one person who needs this Passover. One person in your life who needs this amazing sacrifice. One person who needs to believe God and to receive the forgiveness that He offers them through Jesus Christ. Through His death and His resurrection. And here's what I want you to do with that name. I want you to pray for that person. At least three days a week, if not every single day. And throughout this whole series of the story, I want you to pray for that individual. I want you to pray for their salvation and that God would save them from their sin. I wrote down the name of that person, and I'm going to pray for that person every single day. I, I wrote it on the back leaf of my Bible. And, and the next thing that I'm going to do, and, and the, actually the next thing I did, is I wrote down 1 Corinthians 5-7, which was there. 1 Corinthians 5-7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I'm going to pray for that person that they would realize that sacrifice for themselves and that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm going to set my alarm for 5.07 in memory of Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians. At 5.07 p.m. every single day, I'm going to have an alarm go off. It's not going to be a long 20-minute prayer, but it's going to remind me I need to pray for that person. That's just how I'm going to do it. You can choose however you're going to do it. But pray for that person that God's grace would be shown through Jesus, the sacrifice who died for your friend. Perhaps, though, that name that you need to write today is your own. You might be here and you might go, you know what, I, I don't have skin in the game. I, I know that I'm separated from this God and that my sin has violated His holiness. I, I know I'm His enemy. And I need that forgiveness. I need that grace. If you're hearing about God's story and you've comprehended your need for repentance, maybe for the first time, you and I are, are born into this world with a devastating problem. We are sinners. And we have rejected our Creator. We come into this world with this devastating problem and we are enemies of this holy God. And we are un, utterly unable to save ourselves from His wrath. But the beautiful part, thing about God's story that He shared with us, and He started it from the very beginning when He offered that grace to Adam and Eve as soon as they rejected it. The beautiful thing is that God, out of His great love for us, accomplished something spectacular. He took on flesh. He became one of us, and then He shed His blood on a cross. 
more than just shedding his blood and more than the physical pain and the agony of that cross, the worst part of it all is he took all the wrath that was ever pointed towards you and me and Jesus bore all of that on himself. There was a man who asked the apostles in the book of Acts, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they responded, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God declares elsewhere, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just like those Israelites applied that blood to their doorposts and they said, we believe. The spectacular truth that God seeks your reconciliation. And if it's your name that needs to be written there today on that piece of paper, my prayer for you is that you receive the only solution that has been made for your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was sacrificed for you and who accomplished the victory by rising from the dead. If that's a decision that you've made, if you've said, I, I'm in, I, I believe him, I believe what he said. The Bible tells us that in that moment that you put your trust in him as the solution for your sin, God has done a great many things in starting that reconciliation and that relationship. And I would like to know about it. On your way out, just, just stop me and say, Pastor Jeff, I, I believe. I trusted him. Or if you have questions about Jesus Christ, it's, a, it's an act of the will. It's a decision. It's not just a, a, an emotion of the heart. It's not just a assent in the, in the mind to certain facts. If you have questions about Jesus, I would love to sit down and talk with you about the gospel, the good news of what he did for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Passover lamb, Jesus, who died for us, who shed his blood on our behalf. We thank you for your great plan a plan that you started the moment we rebelled against you. And you call each one of us to this relationship. You call each one of us to faith in Jesus Christ. As we repent from our sin, He is the solution. And so we look to Him. We look to what He accomplished on the cross. Father, I pray for my friends here today that they would know this forgiveness that they would share this forgiveness. They would point others to faith in Jesus Christ. Might we celebrate together that he is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. Amen.